You're listening to The DAP Project. This is your co-host, Rhonda Elizabeth. You can find me on IG at Rhonda Henderson and on Twitter at educate underscore Rhonda. And I'm Aaron Stallworth. My IG is Aaron.Stallworth. The DAP Project is a podcast that explores culture and politics through DAP, the Black man's most telling and nuanced gesture. Today, we're talking with Adrian Loving and Jamil Hamilton, longtime friends and DJs. Rhonda, tell us why we're talking with DJs. Well, it seemed like an intuitive next step to focus on the intersection of music and app because music comes up in every conversation. And to talk to Adrian and Jamil specifically because of their genuine appreciation for art and culture. As DJs, they're simultaneously observing culture, interpreting it, and in their music, giving something back that really touches your soul. I've heard both of them DJ, including DJ sets together. It was one of the last parties before quarantine, and they create an unforgettable, I'm so tired from dancing experience. That feels like it could be an extension of good dap. I wanted to explore that dynamic. I think Jamil best summed it up when he said, what we're talking about is anthropology. Yeah, Jamil is like your favorite barber at your hometown barbershop, because he just knew shit about the culture. And Adrian's reflection on what it means to be a creative made me realize that arts are not meant to be electives. They are required coursework for all of us. Jamil and Adrian truly love music, love talking about music, and they love the cultural expression that it is. Both Adrian and Jamil grew up in the DC area where they picked up DAP from family, attended Howard University where they met, and have been anchors in the DC cultural scene for over 20 years. This conversation has part oral history about how changes to a city hit the culture and part masterclass on how to move the crowd from guys who have been doing it for years. Let's get into it. When do you remember your first DAP? What's your earliest memory of DAP? For me, it probably would have been um, <clears throat> toddler, like four or five years old, uh, only because you used to see the older kids, you know, in the kid hierarchy when you're growing up and around the way, there's a kid hierarchy, right? There's you, you know, little guys and girls, and then there's the big kids. Now, big kids are people who are taller than you. They're typically tweens to teenagers. And then there's the adults, which is everybody over 16. And I remember watching the bigger kids give each other that. And I know one of my neighbors, like one of my childhood playmates, his, uh, a couple of his uncles had been to the war with Vietnam vets. So they see each other, you know, and you see the old guys talking and this is, in, you know, I'm old enough. This is the 70s. So people are supposed to be still speaking in what they call jive. Mm-hmm. You know, hey man, what's going on? Ain't nothing, not a thing, you know? You got the bread? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah. I remember the older, watching the big kids mimicking the adults, you know, the vets, the old dudes who've been, some of the dudes still wearing their, their green jacket on the block, no shirt, mm-hmm. and giving each other dap. And watching the big kids mimic that, and we wanted to be like the big kids, you know, that we looked up to. So we would do dap. And then we started, you know, and they had rhymes that went along with them. So, yeah, we would, I was a little kid. I was maybe, like I said, before even elementary school. And you're around the way, you said, was in far northeast. Which neighborhood in far northeast were you? Well, the realtors. You must have been on the border. You said by the shrimp boat. So which side Mm -hmm. of East Capitol Street were you on? Northeast. Right by the On the northeast side. Okay. Northeast side, yeah. What are the realtors calling them now? Capitol View? (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know about that. Over by the shrimp boat. That's where people say where you're from. You don't say a neighborhood. People say, I live over by X. Yeah. <laughs> Off Texas Avenue. I live over mm. by the shrimp boat. I live by, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Nobody. Oh, it's true. just really occurring to me how true that is. Because when um, when you say that, I, I don't know the name of that neighborhood, but I know exactly the neighborhood that you're talking about. And the neighborhood is called over by the shrimp boat. Over by the shrimp boat. Because you can name the yeah. decent landmarks. Yeah, that would be part of the initiation. I definitely want to. I used to teach at the Maya Angelou Public Charter School, which was in the building. I forget the name of the school. But... It was in, um, in um, Hines. That's right. That's right. Because I lived on that block when I bought my first house in D.C. I lived at the corner. Ah, I got gotcha. Seventh place. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, four years old. That might be the youngest, unless Adrian was three. Were you three ages? Okay. Yeah, I I would say I was a kid, maybe like 12, 13, uh, somewhere between 10 and 13. It was definitely probably on the the playground. Um, You know, you're you're kids, you play kickball, you play basketball, you play football. And I don't know if it's really a dap. It's more just like a kind of a bump or something or, hey, you know – you know, you did it or you kicked a home run or you, you hit that shot. It, it was more of um, 
it was probably less about um, black acknowledgement, but more of just like sportsman, sportsman like contact. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. it took the form of hand to hand. It, it was it wasn't a clap and it wasn't a, a back pat. It was more of just like a some kind of bump or something, fist bump or something close to that. That's mm-hmm. the first time I remember doing something like that. Yeah. And how did you feel once you executed it? Kinship. I did. I did something, and I got recognized for it. And um, it was that moment, and that was yeah. it. No words needed to be said. It was just like, Psh, okay, let's go. You know. And this was in PG. Um. Yeah. It was. It, yeah. It was in PG. It was definitely in PG County, out in out in the burb, black community. Yeah. Is it okay to say Ward Nine? Ward Nine. No. <laughs> 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 like Ward 12, probably. No, it was right over the border, right? It's in Prince George's, so. Yeah, it was Landover, say, so it was Land. It that's was 100% old- Ward 9. Okay, yeah, you're right, you're right, mm-hmm. I haven't heard that. I'm curious, Adrian, you mentioned, you know, what the depth meant to you at 12, 13 versus today, it may mean something totally different. But how would you define, I guess this goes for both of you, how would you define the definition of depth for you as far as what it means beyond just a simple physical gesture? Well, I think as I've gotten older and I understand myself and other Black men and our need to relate on things and be acknowledged and be, be seen and be present, I think it, it takes on a different form as you get older. You have thought deeplier about yourself, and then I think it, it still is a, sort of an instinctive move, but it's layered with more meaning now versus being more of a just sort of, I, I would never say it was superficial, but a, a quicker sort of, you know, contact. You know, when your friends die and, you know, people come and go and you've had fights and you've had conflict and, uh things that happen in your life that create more meaning for your getting together, doing things, that's when the DAP becomes more of a, a meaningful exchange. That's what I think. My thinking about it started to really evolve when I started meeting black men from other cities because cats from different towns had different DAP, right? Mm-hmm. And then you would meet the occasional square who didn't know how to DAP. The dude Tell us Mo- about that, please. Take us to that moment. The Moco, from way out in Moco, where the dude who grew up in a white area, you kind of feel bad for them because they don't, they didn't DAP. They was like, they don't know what it is. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a physical aspect to it, there's a verbal acknowledgement as well, which is how black men check on each other. You know, what's going on with you, brother? You all right? You know, and, you know, some cats say, oh, you know, all good, and nothing but a thing. Mm-hmm. Chilling, you know, can't call it. Everybody has a response. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and when you start, like when I got to college, you know, I started meeting black men. You know, we were at lessons still from Chicago, New York, you know. And, um, you know, and I'm part New Yorker because my father is, is from Harlem. So my siblings, my, I have an older brother and he's from Brooklyn. So meeting him for the first time, because we didn't have the same parents, um, same mothers, you know, oh, this guy greets me in a slightly different way than a dude from Northeast would greet me. Mm. But it still acknowledges, it's a representation of your black male identity, the fact that you do do it, and that every guy has a different twist on it, or every city has a different twist on it. Cats from Buffalo, I remember meeting dudes from Buffalo, and they had a whole thing with that. I was like, all right, that's how they do it in Buffalo. Okay. So I think these are like tribal markers, and it's, it's a way that black men seek to embrace each other in the way that we can that's still very protected. It's kind of like the window into, into the, the sheer consciousness of black male, malehood. Right. And that's what I like about it. So I think about the different levels of it, you know, we often refer to it as levels, you know, that when you mm-hmm. first meet somebody, you might just simply be a little bit more than a handshake with the, you know, snap or something like that versus I know you very well. So great to see you. I'm gonna give you the dap. I'm gonna give you the hug. I'm going to embrace for a minute. I'm going to look at you in your eyes, all that good stuff. How would you define levels and why are there levels that you use or find yourself using and when are they used? Well, yeah, that, I mean, I think you're correct in, in that there is a, I don't want to say there's a hierarchy, but I think that there's definitely an internal system of who gets what. Like, for example, um, I don't know if you, any of you guys do this, but like there's three X's, right? There's one X, two X, three X's. When you put your X next to a name, when you're signing off on a, 
thing. It's sort of like a hierarchy. If you get to three X's, it's like more love. And one X is like, okay. <laughs> Two X's is like, all right, we cool. Like, you probably get like five X's, okay? You probably get like five X's and some hearts and other things. Oh, that is people, wonderful. 12 some, X's for me. Okay, yeah, great. some people might just get like ones, like, okay. okay. But um, I've known Jamil for, I don't know, 20 years now, basically, or more. And so we'll dap, but we we might not dap. We might just like a hug or might just be, hey, you know, I mean, obviously right now during COVID, I mean, we're just sort of, there's restraint involved in, you know, your amount of contact. So you may want to, but you may just say, all right, I won't. And just out of, you know, respect, but we know that there is, is some kind of dap that is there. So I think with new people, like, let's say there's black men at work, right? We have a few new black men that have joined our teaching staff. I don't know them that well. Like they're kind of new and one guy's not necessarily African-American and I'm trying to figure out our relationship because he doesn't talk that much and I'm trying to see what his deal is. So he ain't getting really no dap right now. (laughs) Cause there's trust and there's like, I don't feel that comfortable with you. So you won't get dap. But Khalid who's been there for like four years and you know, we work together and you know, we were boys you know, we're colleagues, but we're, we're boys too. Um, we can give that throughout the school in public and it's fine. So it's, it's mm-hmm. collegial, but it's also black men in a white institution recognition kind of dap, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that would be, those would be the extremes for me, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Adrian, you, you hit the nail on the head. Some people you don't, you don't bang with heavy. So you like, you give them the, you know, mm, I don't know. And then you <laughs> is that obligatory dap? Is that yeah. dap, lame dap? Like a dude, if you were to give it a name, a dude that's you. There's inside. There's the inside dap. Like there's you're in the dap circle. Meaning, right. I acknowledge you as a black man. I have to give you something. Yeah, <laughs> right. baseline level of I got to give you something because you were a black dude like me. I might not like you that much. <laughs> but I'm not going to freeze you out all the way. Right. But if you meet some sucker like, you know, Van Jones, you can give him that. He's like, man, go ahead, man. You know, some some guy that you don't really respect, even if for men you don't necessarily know that well or particularly care for, but you give them a baseline level of respect, you will give them some sort of physical contact to acknowledge that, yes, I see you, black man. And then there's the black man who you don't even see him. I'm like, I don't even see you. Don't even touch me. Mm. You, don't, you, don't, you, don't even, you don't even make the overture. You don't even move your body in that way. Because you know when guys are coming in, they their hand goes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I don't lift my hand for some mm-hmm. dudes. I see him. What's up? But how do you know? Is it because you've met them before and yeah. you're just, you're not, you're not checking yeah, for them? Or? Yeah, he's weird. Like, he looks like a, one of those dudes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say, look, because you know it's wrong to judge people by their appearances. You feel wrong. Mm. Your energy feels wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So. In a previous interview, my older brother broke that down about, just the sensory element of that. It's maybe he looks nervous or uh, the way he's holding his body just doesn't look right. Just something about it says, yeah, no, you're not, I'm not even coming in for anything. Mm-hmm. So that's the no dap. And then what's the progression? Like I acknowledge you, then you're somebody who I, I'm very fond of. And then there's the people you genuinely love and care about and are happy to see, right? So. Adrian is my boy. We've we've we transcended that. We're so close. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then there's the people you don't see often enough that you have to you give them a dap that expresses how glad you are to see them. Mm-hmm. Right? And then there's the people you give the pro forma, hey black man dap. I don't really know you that well. You seem cool. So I'm gonna give you I wish you well because I know how hard it is out here for us. Mm-hmm. Then there's a, this Bama, but I can't <laughs> <laughs> I can't get you all the way since you are from around my neighborhood. All right. <laughs> that's going in the glossary the this bama dap <laughs> the this bama dap the dap given charitably and begrudgingly simply for the good of the culture and to maintain the copacetic energy of the setting we know that probably has more this, colorful interpretations is this joker right or this, <laughs> this joker uh, right here yes yes um, yes levels there are for sure. Yeah, yeah there are uh, absolutely. for sure levels. I have a question about the obligatory DAP. We heard this really funny story about 
And I think I chatted with you about this, Adrian, about men giving DAP to keep the peace with their wife or their significant other. It doesn't have to be a wife, but in this story, it was um, a female. And the, uh, the husband would give DAP just to keep the peace because the wife was friends with that dude's wife and they didn't want any beef. And so they would just go ahead and dap the dude up, but their heart really wasn't in it. Um, so it was male to male dap, basically. It was male to male dap, but he didn't want to, and it made him feel bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's going to be a lot of times when you don't want to do something. I, I think, uh, I mean, there's plenty of times in professional circles or personal circles where, um, okay, I'll give you an example, right? I'm not going to name names. <laughs> <laughs> Although the name is clearly on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> I'm literally Keep thinking about that fool right now. There was a girl I used to date, and she basically wound up messing with this other dude, right? And I didn't like that dude at all. Like While you were dating or after you stopped dating her? Yeah, had an affair, okay? <gasps> I did not like this dude. I thought his music was whack. He was whack. <laughs> right? And... Um, <laughs> Jamil knows, knows who this person is, but I'm not, I, I don't want to. Call, saying I don't, don't want to call the spirits into existence. It was a long time ago, and so after you know, shit had crashed and burned, and I saw this dude out in the street. Like I was with other people who knew him and who were friends with him, and so instead of putting on the salty face. As I approached, I just tried to like take a deep breath and like let my animosity or any old feelings or energy try, try to like go away. And I try to just sort of step outside of myself and perform a routine. So um, it was a performative dap, quote unquote, not necessarily with any wholeheartedness, but to keep my appearance up and to keep my um, level of uh, integrity up, I did it. You know, and it wasn't, it wasn't like a whole, yo, come on in. It was just like, hey, what's up? And that was it. You know, maybe I didn't even look at him. I just did it and then kept it moving. It's like we do that for the sake of black brotherhood, you know, every now and then. Yeah. Like you're not out here trying to like ruin the race. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. You just did something that I will never forget and I cannot condone, but it's in the scheme of things, you're not the devil. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's, that's what it is. But the fact that the devil is even on the scheme <laughs> says something about how uh, ridiculous this individual is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jamil and Adrian separately decided to attend Howard University in Washington, D.C. A Different World had just debuted on NBC in 1987, and Spike Lee's School Days would be released a year later in 1988. Fun fact, Lawrence Fishburne's character in School Days was named Dap. Anyway, there seemed to be a halo around the black college experience. They embraced this feeling and the affirmation would fuel their creative life as DJs, artists, and cultural critics. I went to Hampton for a year. Uh-oh. All right. Howard because I did not enjoy being in a small city. Uh-huh. There's nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, going to Hampton was like being on the set of school days. I mean, it was very small. It's a smaller school. It's in a small city. The locals were hostile towards you. The black locals were hostile towards us. It was crazy. I said, mm-hmm. I don't need this crap. <laughs> I went to school. At least it's in a town where I can do stuff, do things other than hang out on campus. So I went to Howard, uh, met Adrian shortly thereafter, and this was during the the golden ages of HBCUs, which is, you know, the, the years following the release of School Days, leading into a different world being on TV, mm-hmm. you know. So that was kind of a very grand time to be at one of the big HBCUs because you kind of saw yourself. It was like representation in a very meta sense. So you felt like you were a member of the cast of these of these films and these TV shows because it was so close to your life. So that it made it that much more magical in a lot of in a lot of ways. Like we knew we were part of something special and there was a, a sense of, it was pride, but it was also like the whole world is watching us. So we have to, we have a duty to be our best at everything. I shuddered, I got into a couple of PWIs, the very prominent PWIs, you know, and they were like, oh, you're a Negro, we'll give you a full scholarship. You'll be lonely because there's no black people here, but you know, at least you'll be able to say you graduated from this school. And that'll be your entree into the American elite. And I, I was looking around going, I refuse 
to be a, a, a speck of pepper on this price bowl. So I ended up going to, I chose to go to an HBCU. I knew I was going to go to one. I just didn't know which one yet. And I tell people all the time, it's the best decision I ever made because I wouldn't be the person I am today. And then I wouldn't have met Adrian, one of my best friends in life. I uh, wouldn't have, you know, the added bonus of going to school with people who would go on to be famous and having all these famous alumni. You know, there were so many pluses that the negatives, you know, that come with, come with going to under-resourced Black institutions, you know, you get used to it and you, you move past it and you embrace what's good. It's a larger f- familial sense, the HBCU family. Man. You know, I don't even get caught up, oh, I went to Howard, you went to, you know, some other school. I'm like, you went to an HBCU, that means you get it. And you kind of feel bad for people that didn't have that opportunity. Not like, look at you, you, you lost. More so like, I, w- I would just feel sad because I wish every Black person could have the experience of being surrounded by Black excellence for four years and not have to deal with the nonsense that you deal with when going to a white school because I would spend my whole growing up being the smart Black kid that was shipped to white schools. Mm. That's, yeah, that's good. Um, it's funny, I got accepted into Hampton too. Um, and I could have met Jamil at Hampton, but I got housing. <laughs> that was the big deal back then. Like you got housing or you didn't because everyone was trying to go to these schools. Mm-hmm. And so um, I started at Howard and I mean, you know, Bison life was interesting, um, you know, coming from a predominantly black high school, but then also having been the only black person at a middle school too, in an elementary school. So I kind of was in Richmond and Maryland growing up. So um, Howard was like this, just, it, it was an opportunity to affirm what you had intuitively known about yourself, which is you have a um, community connection with a really rich diaspora of Black people from everywhere. See that. Be wowed by the beauty. I mean, it was also very shiny. You know, that was an experience. There were like lots of pretty things to look at. It was like being at a dinner table with the best food, the most colorful and exciting people. And you just have this long dinner party for four years. Obviously there, it wasn't all rosy, but the good feeling of it is that, you know, you came away feeling full and fed and nourished. So I, I thank Howard for that. Cause I don't, I know I wouldn't have gotten that anywhere else. And the conditions and the time that we were there um, made that possible. And, and I think also just like having a level of style thrown onto it and, affluence and a little bouginess and, you know, all those things that kind of come with being in DC and, you know, going to the nation's largest African-American university and the sort of prestige and level of education, I think add to your sort of pedigree. And so um, as it relates to DAP, I mean, that's just something that is embedded in that, that motion. And like, as I said before, there's so many things as an older person that DAP means, depending on who you do it with. I mean, when we're at homecoming, you know, and I see old classmates and old women that I used to know and still know and um, teachers and whomever I, I interact with. I mean, that's a that's a bison thing, too. And even how I feel now about like the Kamala Harris's and the Chadwick Bozeman's and the Taraji Henson's and all the sort of really talented and hardworking people that came out around the time that we did. It also makes me feel like you know, we're part of a really important legacy and important time of, of real black creativity. All that kind of is in that. It is unspoken, it is unsaid, it is it's just known and felt. You know what I mean? This is a magical place. A place where the dynamics of positive and negative seem to exist in extremes. So tell us a little bit about your creative work, and then we'll talk some about how DAP shows up in uh, in those spaces. Uh, creative work. Um, you know, I've been DJing since I was a tween in some shape or form. You know, little neighborhood basement parties. You know, uh, we started DJing. I started DJing because I was the kid who I had 45s that my mom would get for me in the Wiz downtown. Oh, mm. Nobody beats the Wiz. Yeah. Or Kent Mill or, or Kent Mill Records. Or um, what was the other one, Adrian? Is Kitten Waxy Maxies. Waxy Maxies, thank you. Or Sabins. Sam Goody at PG No, Sabins over on Pennsylvania Avenue. I don't know about Ken that. And um, Black-owned record store broke a lot of oh. Black artists from D.C. Like, Got it. 
So my mom would bring home 45s because I would say, Mom, I like music. And my mom was a big jazz head. So she'd go in the jazz section. And I would just get little 45s because they were cheap. Neighborhood kids would say, hey, we're throwing a party. Where's all the little kids? Again, not big kids. Kids under 12. Go in someone's house, put on a record player. And I would say, I would do the records. That's a very formative experience for you because you kind of see how people respond to music. And then fast forward to being a teenager and meeting guys who actually were real DJs and kind of following in their footsteps to meeting Adrian because we both started buying DJ records, 12 inches, around the same time in life from Sam the Man, Burns, Rest in Peace, Rest in Power, mm, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we at shopping records. at Tower Records too? Tower Records, 12-inch dance records in DuPont Circle, which, you know, yeah. no longer there, but that was the store yeah. we had to go to. And all the, there was like four guys that would sell you records and you got a, you built a relationship with the people who sold records to you because there was no internet. Right. internet. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all of it becomes part of your cultural identity as an urban black person. That's where all of this stuff comes from, black urban America. It's like an island nation. You know, you might be from the island of Chicago. I might be from the island of Brooklyn, but they're all connected by a culture. Mm-hmm. And right. so the DJ culture thing, you have a relationship to other black people through music that's a little bit more profound because you start to see how music informs what's going on in our community and how our community informs what's going on in the music. And it really changes your mindset and your approach to every single artifact of black cultural life. DAP is one of them. DAP is one of like 200 things that are like little signifiers of, oh, this is part of African-American culture that's very important that we acknowledge it. So yeah, in my, in my creative life, my joke is as I get older, I get blacker, you know, because the things we, that we used to take for granted I remember taking for granted in my mind that there was always going to be a band as amazing as Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. This is always going to be a thing. You know, a 12-piece band where guys are all just the baddest musicians who ever lived. Wearing the tightest pants possible. Wearing the, I mean, outfit, the, 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 the Vs were deep. Very <laughs> 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 deep. It's like, wow. Just that. And, 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 you know, you took for granted all these things. And then you realize as you get older that you know, you, we are witnessing each generation and its iteration of Black culture is something unique and special mm-hmm. to itself. And we should cherish these things. And um, the thing that's very curious to me is how hip hop culture is something that spread that outside of the Black community because everybody does it. Mm-hmm. Now. Mm-hmm. Or hip hop, nobody did, nobody did it but us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a ton of observations that I, I can make about how music and culture, they're, they're handmaidens to one another, and how music has had this impact um, on the, the American culture wars and the global culture wars, really. You know, And we won, by the way. We're always winning. We stay winning. Always. There was one thing I wanted to comment on quickly as you were kind of reminiscing about, um, about Old DC, about Chocolate City. There was something that our mutual friend Hadia said in an interview, maybe you read this interview, and she noted that DC in the era when we were growing up, and we're just a few years apart, that um, it was like a utopia. It was like a utopia of black culture where anywhere you turn, everywhere you turned, there was an infusion of it. There was some manifestation of it. It might look slightly different across neighborhoods or across communities, but that thread was very strong and very uh, unifying invigorating, inspiring, motivating. And it was a unique time to grow up and we carry that with us to this day, which I think is very precious. I think DC is special in a lot of ways. I mean, there's like all these black utopias that have existed, Tulsa before they bombed it, Harlem during the Renaissance and then during the civil rights movement, you know, Atlanta during the time of Dr. King and the formation of SNCC. All these times where black people have kind of created these oases of it's okay you know it's, it's going to be all right and it's okay yeah it's going to be all right and it's kind of on and popping too like this is yeah. to the extent that you can enjoy being a second class citizen in your own country this is one of the places you can enjoy. well since you put it like that Jamil <laughs> that's a record scratch right there but yes that, those are facts those are, those are 100% facts I'm the fact that yeah it's true because it, it was in a, it, I noticed it it was something that I always found that was sad when I would go other places that weren't like DC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You didn't have black businesses. You didn't have black people who were able to find comfort and right. you know solace and, and and were able to be self-actualized. You go to places where black people were still somewhat more downtrodden yeah. and you feel sad, mm-hmm. angry. You know, I remember every time I leave DC, I'd be mad. Every time I would go to see my family in New York, I'd be angry at the conditions that the black people lived in. And it wasn't until a white man pointed it out to me. This was years ago on U Street. 
people come out of the bars and a drunk white guy walks up, he sees me and a bunch of mutual friends. Adrian, you might have even been there. And um, what was the name of the place that's, that sold the kebabs late at night? On U Street? Mm-hmm. It's where the Jimmy John's is now. Um, oh, 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 oh. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I it's owned by St. Habashiko, very nice Habashiko. Yeah. They were from Somalia or Eritrea. And um, mm-hmm. a white man is drunk. He walks in. You know, in there, they've got all these pictures of all the black greats. You know, you've got mm-hmm. Kellington, you've got Miles Davis, you've got all the people that Marion Barry, you know. And <laughs> white guy says to us, hey, you guys, are you from here? He said, I've never been anywhere like this before. And one of us said, well, what do you mean? He's like, I've never been somewhere where black people were so proud of being black. Mm. And he was from Wisconsin and Minnesota. Right. Well, we know about Wisconsin now, don't we? We didn't know about Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. Now we know and Milwaukee, the most racist place in America. Yeah. And if you ask black people from Milwaukee, they'll tell you. So I, it was remarkable to us that not only did we notice that we had something special, but that a white outsider would notice it upon visiting. There's well, something different. Something going on here. Yeah. Yeah, I remember yeah. noticing that as a black outsider when I moved here in January 1999. Mm. That first, my first few weeks, I got mm. that exact same feeling that black folks are loving, loving their blackness in D.C. versus coming from Texas. You didn't feel that. No matter how successful of a black man I knew in Texas, mm-hmm. our black family, it was not the same as that feeling of success that someone could feel and have in D.C. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I absolutely believe that. talk about having a creative life you a have to acknowledge that you are a creative i think some people don't acknowledge it and so they don't get to take advantage of the full benefits of what it means to say i'm an artist or i am a creative i think they might have leanings or twinklings about doing something fun and creative but they don't fully submit to the process or the consequences you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. um whereas I feel like, you know, it's great to be, to acknowledge myself as a creative in the city because you need people like me to come up with ideas, to be creative, to think outside the box, to challenge the system, to uh, offer alternatives. And, um, you know, there's an expertise for that. I think what's great about um, living a creative life as well is for everything that I appreciate, I also want to like peel back the next layer and look a little more deeply into it. I mean, not everything, but, you know, when I watch films and I listen to music and I, you know, talk about things that are happening, you know, I have a crew of people, you know, Jamil's one of those people, my friend John Murph, um, you know, it's a small, a really tiny group of people that we can just really hash it out with. I don't really trust that everyone else's opinion. And honestly, people are kind of like not that opinionated or deep thinkers. So, because I deal with this at work already, I don't want to waste time on non-productive dialogue if I can help it. We <laughs> say we don't talk to civilians anymore. I yeah, I, just, I, don't, <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> I, so, so I'd rather spend that that thirty minutes, forty-five minutes, hour, whatever time it's going to take to really dive in and get something out of it. You know, I want to get some kind of exchange or some inspiration to further explore it, you know, and and those are just a few trusted people. So part of my creative life and also creative practice is to consistently have opportunities where this can happen, this sort of fusion can happen, you know, but I also like to have fun. I mean, that's what the DJ sets are for. That's what the house parties are for. That's what the fish fries are for. That's what the museum events are for. That's where these things are that are fun and enjoyable can sometimes be learning experience, but also there are time to like congregate afterwards and just rap about it ad nauseum and also uh, do it internationally. You know, I'm not that familiar with other languages to the point where I can speak fluently in them, which feels limiting sometimes to me, but I try, you know, I try to reach out and talk to my Caribbean and my London and my French and my, 
black brothers those first two speak english they speak english English. i know they do they could speak you could be in jamaica that's english technically right you might not understand you don't have no clue what they said though (laughs) yeah yeah i mean part of it is to uh to to try to make some connections and Mm -hmm. find some common ground with your 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 creatives wherever they are in the world and and sort of increase that strength in that tribe and i think for for I definitely Jamil and I, and I thank him for, you know, making sure that I stayed on to coming is going to worldwide. I mean, worldwide is a place that we found another family and another opportunity to, uh, to connect. And, and not everybody's black. There's people who understand DAP and, and the hug and the connections. And they might be a white chick from Brussels, but they get us. They get what we're bringing to the table and they, they engage without the prejudices. It's just straight giving and sharing. You know what I mean? That's a great segue into um, this thought that I want to introduce and it just came to me. So forgive me if it's not entirely well articulated. As DJs, I think your aspiration is to create a great energy in the crowd to, to move the crowd. So I'm wondering first, how does that help you to connect with people in the audience or the people who are showing up? Does it show up or do any of the ideas behind that show up? And right. take us and I, a little bit into your mindset about that. I believe DJs give the perfect metaphorical depth when you're at the house party or at the club or at wherever it is that the DJ is, is doing their thing. Because when that song comes on or when that fade happens or when that beat hits, it's like, damn, that's like giving my long lost friend that a hug, the eye contact, all that because of that beat hitting at that perfect moment. You know, that's what happens here at DJ set. So going to run this question, do you all even consider the fact that that is what you're doing <laughs> when, you're, when you're doing it? Yeah. It's yeah. a cultural communication, right? It's, um, I mean... Adrian, you can acknowledge this because, you know, Adrian, when he throws a bash, like, Rhonda, you came to his bash, his, his event, his function. You know, there's two ways the DJ becomes kind of this this uh, translator for, for a shared experience, right? A, he's the host. You know, sometimes I'm the host. The DJ is the host. People want to be acknowledged by the DJ because that person is the host. So it's like a receiving line in a wedding almost. People got to come up, hey, when they come in the building, the function, they got to give you, hey, what's going on, man? Yeah. Hey, it shows their status because I know the DJ. Mm-hmm. So they can show the world that, yes, I too am a connected person and I'm familiar with this person who's going to entertain us. Status, right? To yeah. be familiar with the DJ. And then there's the whole psychological thing that we as DJs do where if I look at Ron and I look at Aaron, I look at Adrian, I say, okay, these are people I, I either know or don't know. If I don't know you, I have an added challenge, challenge because now I have to figure out how am I going to connect with you and entertain you for the next few hours just mm-hmm. by how you look, your style of dress, the way you carry yourself. I'm reading you, you know, and I'm watching the whole time going, oh, they moved a little bit when I played that song. Okay, I know which way to go. Okay, I had more people move when I played this other song. Okay, and now I see the direction. So it becomes this very, becomes a subverbal call and response with movement is the language. There's no words. And, um, and you balance that against your effort to curate. By that, I mean, and Adrian, you can jump in at any time. Mm-hmm. There's like 400 songs that I know if I go in there, if I play these songs, people are going to have a good time. But I may have played those same 400 songs 400 times a year for the past 15 years. How do we inject something new into this, into this mixture to take people on a little bit of a journey, take people a little bit outside their comfort zone? You know, how far outside the comfort zone is too much? Do people want to be dropped in the deep end, in the deep end of unfamiliar songs? Or do they want some comfort food after a hard week? So you have to do this balancing act of taking people somewhere that they feel comfortable in being free without scaring them and taking them out of their head, out of their headspace. So it's a, it's a very psychological thing. So every DJ is a psychologist, is an observational psychologist. A good one is, mm-hmm. you know, and you do it long enough and it's, it's second nature. You don't think about it. It's instinct. So, yeah, I think, you know, again, DAP is a cultural artifact, you know, because I don't give women DAP typically unless they demand it. Because there are occasionally women who go, no, I don't want a hug. I want you to do me, give me what you gave him. I saw y'all do the DAP. I'm like, no, that's that man thing, baby. Chill. No, I want that because they yeah, want kinship as well, right? You've, Aaron, you've had the experience where you 
You see sisters go, no, I don't want your hug. With my co-host, look at her. She can't even look in the camera because she knows it's facts. I don't want that. I want you. I saw y'all do that. I'm like, that's nothing. I want to be one of the boys. I mean, totally. You you are so right on with this. I mean, you know, the thing is, it's interesting you say the receiving line because, um, yes, there is there is a stewardship as a DJ that when people come in the door, you know, they could have gone anywhere that night. They could have stayed home. They could have gone on a date. They could have done something. They have chosen to come to you. So based on your proximity and your availability physically to them, like if the DJ booth is way up, they might not be able to get to you. Okay. But if it's, if it's on the floor, and they can kind of come up and just, you know, respectfully hit you up behind the DJ booth or whatever. You do it. It's great. And I do that. Like when, when I go see other DJs, like, I mean, when Jamil's playing, you know, I, I don't, he's working, but I'll come up and say, hey, you know, and then keep go back and go get a drink or whatever. Or, um, you know, even like a Rich Medina. I mean, he came to my birthday party when we did uh, the party at Soto and, um, you know, he was he was at the party, and but I didn't really see him until the end. But he was like, "Yeah, you know, I, I gotta come to your birthday, and you know, have you, you know, it was like." And this guy, you know, he he travels, you know, he he's he's out there, but we've known each other. I mean, there's a respect there to to for acknowledgement, right? As far as the music goes, there's people who I know that they're there, like say Karen Parker or like a. a uh, Lawanda or, you know, women who've been in our circle, in our scene for years, um, women especially, because you want to please them and, and sometimes playing a song that they love is, I haven't touched you all night, but I've touched you, you know? And so I know that those are songs that are precious and they mean something to them. And so if, I, if it fits, it works and I can get it on, um, I'll do it because I know that they'll smile and they'll be like, yeah, you played my song. And that's just as good as dap. I mean, that is just a, that's a musical dapping. You know what I mean? My song, that's the form, that's the way men and women communicate is different, but we try to acknowledge each other, I think, and in a way that's meaningful. Because I see black women, sometimes they want the same acknowledgement that we give other men. But you know, because the way men and women relate to each other, we don't necessarily want to do that with women because we think, well, no, we try to be more tender we're gentle with women because for men, that is a, you know, there's muscles involved. You know, my pecs get a little bit of a, and uh, you want to be, <laughs> <laughs> you want to be more gentle. So you say, oh, no, I don't want to do that to you, you know, but I can acknowledge you in other ways. And I think, Adrian, you hit the nail on the head. It's like with, with the fellas, it's one way. Like I can play for the fellas and I know what's going to make men respect what you're doing because they say, oh, this dude knows his music. And then for women, the connection is, is, it's similar, but it's different. It's, it's, it's an emotional thing. It's much more attuned to songs that make them feel a certain way. Oh, that's my song. I remember where I was when I first heard this song. You know, and there's certain songs that you can touch different people. When you have your queer friends in the building, you know, you're going to hit them with, with a little bit of something a little bit different. You're like, yeah, I know who you are. Okay, I got you. I know what's going to make you feel like you're seen. Because everybody wants to be seen, right? That's the phrase these days. Yeah, absolutely. And we try to make people feel seen. So, yeah, it's like... You're hugging people one song at a time. So what are these songs that you know you can play for someone and it's like giving them a dap? Let let me just say this. Um, There's a line between being patronizing and satisfying someone. Vanilla Ice, patronizing. No, 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 no. Not even in that way. Like, for example, let's just say... Let's just say you get into an Uber, right? And there's some kind of like, let's, let's say the, the, the Uber driver is Indian, right? And you're black people get in the Uber. This guy might change his station to a black station thinking that you will be appeased by black music or radio black music. And I'm like, why do you change the station? It's happened before. It's subtle, but it, it, it happens. And, I, and I've been patronized or catered to in a way that I don't want to be. Okay. So... I have to watch it. I have to monitor that for myself, you know, that I'm not doing that to a, a group of black folks that I'm happy that they came in because the crowd was so white. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. let me let me not disrupt my flow to that degree, but let me also be cognizant of them and let them feel comfortable because I want them to stay. If they're cool, I want them to stay. OK. Yeah, I think there's a lot between pandering to people. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And acknowledgement and pandering is like you're it's very it's a very cynical 
enterprise, right? It's like, okay, you simple. If I play this song that I know y'all you colors like off the radio, you know, I'm gonna turn off NPR when I get you get in the Uber and put on, you know, right, a little mosey, a little baby or something. You know, that's kind of a pandering because the, the the thinking is that we don't know anything else, so we have no high, we have no higher expectation. Mm-hmm. Then there's a difference between saying I'm seeking to establish a relationship with you or further relationship with you because we're sharing this musical space, and one is very intentional and conscious and conscientious. The other is very cynical and transactional. Yeah. So people can tell when you're pandering to them versus saying, you know what? I'm so happy you came in here. You could have been anywhere on this lovely Friday night. You came to my party. Right. You know, let's have a musical communion. Mm-hmm. Right. DJing is hard, hard, hard work. Everybody thinks it's just playing these hot songs that are out. But yeah. me and this gentleman will tell you, we spend time trying to find songs that people may not have heard, but we think will touch them. Mm-hmm. That's the work. Yeah. The research, the research is real deep. Um, many, many hours. But, but also, I think we have been playing long enough that we've created, we've cultivated an audience of very sophisticated ears, too. I mean, you'll get people who are like, you know, they kind of just flow in and they're like, all right, what's this guy going to do? But my true blue, like, people that I make mixes for that, you know, follow me regularly, um, they they expect something and they expect us not to just be surface. And if you have a surface night, they'll be like, you could have gone deeper or what was this? You know, like they will tell you Tracy Fortson, right? Tracy Fortson travels around the world to go hear DJ Spinna, Rich, Louie, like Timmy Reg. Like she she her ear and her expectation is more sophisticated and she's older like Atoya Watts. Like those are people that I grew up with women who were like they knew their music. They knew what the experience should be like, and they expected something if we were going to be in the driver's seat for the night. And so if one of them are there and everybody else is people I don't know, I'm catering to them, you know, there's most a, likely. A sophisticated listener that you see. Every DJ has that night where right. somebody comes to you and taps you and says, hey, you know who's back there, right? And right. it's somebody famous. And don't let it be a famous musician. I won't, like, my Monday nights, every so often, about three or four times a year, it'll be somebody famous because they're in town for Kennedy Center or XM. And you know who's in the back? And they're back there nodding their head. So you go, oh, I can't fuck around now because I have a sophisticated audience, someone who knows music. And that's the, the remarkable difference between DJing for crowds in urban, urban America versus when you play in Europe where everybody's sophisticated because they study Black music like their lives depend upon it. They recognize how special it is more so than we do sometimes. So those audiences are much more like they're listening to be listening. Mm-hmm. You know, they're listening for, for um, because they see this the special essence of Black American culture or Black culture, Black diasporic culture, really, because it's the Caribbean, it's America, it's Brazil, it's everywhere. And they're listening with an intensity that, again, as a Black American, you're so surrounded by this stuff so, so much that you just take it for granted. But you have a Frenchman come up to you and they'll know stuff about your favorite artists that you didn't know because they pour over that person's life with a magnifying glass and listen to all the, the unreleased demos and read the biography and, you know, went to Gary Indiana to see Michael Jackson's house, do crazy stuff. So, you know, you have to walk this very fine tightrope with audiences. But again, it all comes back to making sure that the people you, you have this experience with feel seen. And also you get something back as a DJ because nothing feels better as a DJ when you play something that is obscure, but it's such a powerful piece of music. It's such a verb. And people react to it as though it's the best song that they've been hearing their whole lives because it opens them up. That's what you're looking for. It's all about community at the end of the day. I mean, that's what we're talking about. You're talking about DAP. You're talking about DJing. You're talking about, you know, the HBCU experience. You're talking about being from a chocolate city. We're building, we're talking about community as a, as a mechanism for, for spiritual survival and spiritual prosperity. With gentrification, and how has that changed your audience, your approach to your craft? You don't. I don't care about gentrifiers. Right. Is that it? I don't have a big answer for that either. I mean, I, I don't think that deeply about it. Like, we try to uh, push into some new territories and, you know, bring in new audiences and, and try to make it as mixed and diverse as possible. But um, those people aren't into what we're doing anyway. Like they, they, they might stumble in by accident, but they're not, most of those people are not 
finding us. They go out, they go into some lame hall. You know, this is lames. I don't, I don't, I don't have nothing for lames. You can either get with what we're doing or not. I'm not changing the thing about what I'm doing because you moved in to, you moved over by Howard. moment now and it's a moment of joy but it's also a moment of tremendous struggle and and grief so you guys also have your finger on the pulse so how are you reading this moment and what do the people need to hear for us to feel the depth that we're not able to actually give or receive big questions um i mean i think it's good when we are able to see our best work, our, uh, our brilliance coming out in whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, whether it's something that you read or something you see, like, for example, I took some time this morning and I went to go read some articles in Vogue magazine. Um, Carrie, Carrie James Marshall, who's a famous African-American artist, is on the cover. Um, him and Jordan Castile did the black fashion covers, paint painters, which has never happened before. Um, there was an article about Jonathan Moore, who's in... Um, uh lovecraft country you know i just i in in these sort of traditionally white spaces there are some black brilliance and black excellence kind of coming out and i could take the position of criticizing like well why isn't it have been there and i I do that of course but i'm also like okay well you know that and the, the the vanity fair and other things we're seeing are are just sort of beacons of light and i and also believe that there's a lot of incubation going on like right now i mean we're we're working on music we're talking to our friends who are working on underground projects, things that we can't see. We just have to have faith that our folks are kind of in the trenches working. So as we find some some more, as the clouds lift in, in all this, uh, we're going to see some real bright things happening. I mean, that's, that is my hope. That is my confidence. And that's my wish. And it, is, it doesn't serve me to think otherwise. Um, and that's what I talk about. I'm not a person and I don't sit in dwell in negativity i mean we just handle shit as it happens but um yeah it's kind of dark and i can't say that it hasn't affected me but i'm here and my job is as an artist is to make things brighter and better and more interesting i live by that mission mm. yeah that's well said man I, I don't know if i can add on to that um other than to say as a black person you know you're always haunted by sorrow and worry but then we always have these bright spots, you know, in our community that make you kind of go, you know what, we're going to be okay. We're going to do better than okay. We're going we're gonna to flourish because we don't stop. And so I focus on the people and the things that are, you know, are moving forward. You know, all of my creative friends have been using this downtime as like, oh, here's my chance to start something new or finish something I've been working on or ruminate on, you know, something I've been thinking about for a while. And then I think about all, all the people that I don't know that are, out there doing the same thing. And I'm, it just makes me happy because I know this period is going to be a period of incubation. I think the best part about what's going on is that this is the first time in my life where I've seen Black people just being very frank about how we feel. It doesn't matter who the audience is. When we don't like something, we don't equivocate. We say, I don't like that. This was some nonsense. And that certain people, certain groups need to get their act together because this, this is growing beyond anybody's, what anybody should have to tolerate or endure. And I'm proud of us for speaking the truth, you know, in so many different forms and so many different ways in in the art and in rhetoric, which leads me to believe that the other side of this particular period of crisis is going to yield so many good things because I don't think there's been a time where Black people have ever had license to be close to being honest about how we were really feeling at any given moment without fearing of triggering a backlash from the, the powers of be. So I'm grateful that I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of the, fe- <clears throat> the fearlessness that I'm watching. It's gratifying to see it. And uh, yeah, we want to have to have conversations about if our culture does in fact have value, and I'm not talking about monetary value, but the social and spiritual value of culture, you know, how do we build it to the best effect? That's one of those conversations I'm, re- I'm looking very forward to having with people as the official old head. I'm looking forward to talking about that and how why is it everybody wants to do DAP now? Used to be, you had to be a soul brother to do DAP, right? Mm-hmm. You ain't got no soul, why are you doing DAP? Mm-hmm. 
That's a good question. Exactly. I want to have those conversations about cultural appropriation. Has anybody in the group ever read um, Red Bloods? No, tell me about that. It's a, it's a book, came out in the 80s. It's about the Black experience in Vietnam. And a lot of what Spike's movie, The Five Bloods, was based on was, I didn't read it, but from having read the book and watched the movie, I know he read that book too, because I think half of people I knew were reading it when we were at Howard. But it's about the Black experience in Vietnam. And I was reading that, and I was thinking about this book I just discovered not too long ago called The Almighty, Almighty and the Insane, which is when I got the call from uh, Adrian about this, this uh, call with Rhonda. It made me think of this book. If you guys heard of the Almighty and the Insane? Now, I'm wondering if you'd be shopping at Sankofa. I used to shop yeah. at Pyramid Books when it was Pyramid. Oh, Pyramid! <laughs> I bought the Bloods. After watching Spike's movie, I bought the Bloods book. It's sitting on my nightstand now, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I read that in college, right? So that yeah. blew my mind. It's a, it's a heavy read. And then you go back and read, well, the Almighty and the Insane is not even a literary, it's not even a narrative. It's a, it's a collection. And Adrian, I showed this to you when you came over, right? Yeah, And it, it, it's very much in line with this conversation because it's about all the Chicago gangs. They would have business cards printed and it would say a gang member would come into your establishment and say, hello, my name is Crazy Crazy Mike. I'm from, you know, Universal Vice Lords or whatever. The almighty and the insane Universal Vice Lords. And he'd give you a card and his card might say treasurer. And it would have the gang's logo, such that it was, his position, their territory, what they covered, right? And the area they were in control of. And they were just letting you know that they were operating around you and that, you know, you're going to have, there's going to be an interaction in the future. And you think about how, you know, gang dap has its own thing. Mm-hmm. Like if you were in a gang, and like we haven't talked, I don't know if anybody else has talked about that, but. Oh, it came up, yes. Gang dap yeah. is real because that was the big difference. You could give, you know, the little kid dap or the, the regular dap, like, you know, up five, down low, too slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you right, took right. it all the way back. <laughs> um, uh, or you could give the gang dap and cast that were in gangs. You know, this was, DC didn't have the huge gang situation that we had, they had in Chicago and New York or LA, but there were still gangs, A-Team, Gangster Chronicles, Ethan H. Crew, all those guys. But I remember in Brooklyn, you know, when I would be with my dad and, and the gangs, they were huge. They said the height of gangs and at one point they were half a million dudes in gangs. Wow. And black men between the ages of, you know, 13 and 21, sometimes younger. Mm-hmm. And the gangs had their own depth. Yep. And you had to learn the depth to get into the gang. It's almost like pleasure a frat, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of people now who want to do black stuff don't realize yeah, it, there's a transition. It all transitioned through these very formative Black experiences, Black veterans fighting in Vietnam, to on the streets back in the major urban centers, down to the youth, the kids that were us, into the gang culture that still exists to this day. And anytime you go into any juvenile correctional facility, when you join it, you see these same handshakes that have been around for 40, 50 years now. That's so crazy because... Um what you're saying, we've heard echoes of in our previous um, conversations. Um, one of our guests told us about learning the gang dap because his college roommate had been in a gang from the Midwest and so taught him that, not intentionally, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to teach you this gang dap, but this is just how we do it. Mm-hmm. And so he would give dap or he would throw signs like that and people would then think that he was in the gang. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. My roommate is in the DAP. And in the previous conversation referencing the Vietnam War, my brother said the same thing. Um, They are a generation slightly older than you guys, so, you know, older than me as well. And they said the same thing about their friends coming home from the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. and giving these different kinds of DAP on the street. And then the younger guys, like like you guys, paying attention and seeing that. And then we've also talked to dudes who've just come out of college. And so now we're at like the third generation, if you will, of guys who are seeing this and also reinterpreting their dap because they've seen it filtered through three different or two earlier iterations. And now they're still bringing though that spirit. And again, what I think is so just fascinating that we always come back to, at least I always come back to is how it's not verbally explained. This isn't like the, you sit around the, the griot and they tell you, this is how you do it, but it's just internalized. You just pick it up from enough interactions and you make meaning of it by just what you're seeing and how it feels and the music that you're hearing in these different moments and all of that coalesces into, into this DAP. You know, the best representation of, of DAP I've seen 
other than in you know film is go watch the video for Common Resurrection. There's all kinds of gang that thrown up in that in that video. I mean, there's a whole thing where dudes are doing the whole um, vice lords that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a boy from Chicago, my boy Renal, he's from the South Side of Chicago. He showed us, and he was like, "Yeah, you can't do this. Don't do this." But this is right. what it is. Right. You ain't trying to get rolled up. Mm-hmm. Especially on you know South Side or West Side of Chicago, don't do it. I was like, well, thankfully I don't plan to be on the South Side of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> throwing, you don't plan to be on the South Side throwing signs. Not soon, but uh, yeah, I think you know this is anthropology what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We treat it as, as valuable as any other um, dig that an anthropologist would do, you know, and more and something that's viewed as important. It's important because I guarantee you, if you go far enough back, you'll find the same thing somewhere in Africa. We have a piece about that too. We can send you or if you can visit our website and see this work that a sister did on handshakes in Sierra Leone. And she connected those handshakes from Sierra Leone to the depth that guys are giving in Los Angeles, Atlanta, just all across the United States. And again, it is not um, an explanation. It doesn't come in a box with instructions but it's passed down just through the experience of it all. And in particular, what I've been thinking about a lot is in this moment of um, resurging respect for Black Lives Matter, or maybe the respect that they were always due, that our effort, like this conversation right here, is to say that Black Lives Matter. There are no police present, but what we're uplifting is the, the perspective that you guys walk on a daily basis and the way that you show up as black men, um, black creatives, black people who are daring to be their full selves in spite of everything that the world is telling you that you shouldn't be or don't have the right to be. We've been talking for a while and um, how about you tell us if you were DJing at this moment, what would be the the closeout song? What would be the "All right, you did that thing, that song? Not a closeout song. Oh, if I was DJing at this particular moment, you know, I've been really feeling Leroy Burgess lately. You know, um, I, he's been in my daily. I made a mix today. I've been really exploring his music. Him and Patrick Adams a lot. Um, disco pioneers. You know. So, uh, God, what would I do? Um, probably something by them or one of them. Um, Leroy has this song called, um, it's a beautiful song. Um, hang on one second. I'm, I'm looking it up. Um, uh, Dancing into the Stars. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's, it's such a great song. Um, it's something about how he performs it and how he writes and, how it works that just in such a positive um message you know it's uh, it always uplifts me so that might be a closer for me okay i'm gonna have to you know you're familiar with my musical taste <laughs> which is to say that it, it, there's just a lot to be desired there so i'm going to google that and listen to it and, and report i love back. you anyway I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even going to say in spite Slim of fucking shady <laughs> well thank you for loving me unconditionally i hope i bring other i don't know gifts talents you know you do friendship here that can overlook um anyway jamil your closeout I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a recommend and I'm going to say the songs, what I would listen to or what I would play is uh, Wildfires by a group named Salt, S-A-U-L-T. They're an apocryphal. They were one of those groups that came out. Nobody knew who they were. They, you didn't see any pictures of who they were, like the members of the band. Um, it's clearly Black people. And it's come, come to light that it's Michael Kiwanuka, who's a British musician, a Black British musician, and his collective of friends. And they have an album called Black Is that just dropped this summer and I've been listening to it nonstop because it's kind of this mournful piece um, that really contemplates not just what's going on, but what's been going on. But there's always that subtext of black people just keep on trucking. We just keep on chugging, you know, and they're doing it for me right now. So if you don't know about salt, we'll look salt up. Wildfire, <clears throat> Wildfires is my favorite song by them. It's, it's great. So that's what I would play. 
And who's Black Kids by? Salt. S A U L T. Okay. That's their new album that just that just dropped. Okay, Black Kids and Wildfire, both by Salt. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So yeah, they're they're great. And thank you guys for having us. Oh, gentlemen, we definitely appreciate it. You're definitely motivating us to keep on pushing. This has been a beautiful talk. Beautiful talk. This thank is definitely so going to be something special on that project. So thank you very much. No problem. No problem. Okay, this was a graduate level seminar on DJ culture that took us from Leroy Burgess to Common to Carrie James Marshall and Jordan Castile with a little shrimp boat thrown in just for DC flavor. Our show notes are full of beautiful, deeper learnings, so please enjoy reading. The nuance of our blackness is a beautiful thing. I love how Jamil referenced the good times had at Adrian's Fish Fry. Catfish Fry, of course, because that is black people. Black churches, black culture. The culture of D.C., Texas, and much of the South from whence so many of us come. We are shaped by our neighborhoods, our music, our appreciation for the history of our people. Adrian and Jamil perfectly brought these truths to the DAP Project. If this conversation sparked your curiosity about Howard University, we encourage you to watch the visual adaptation of Tom Anahisi Coates' Between the World and Me, where HU is a major influence on Coates' writing and understanding of the world. I watched it as part of our small Thanksgiving 2020 style, and it is wonderful. And as in our previous conversation with Chris and Kiego Stiff, we want to highlight an organization that supports college attendance, the Thurgood Marshall Scholarship Fund, the nation's largest organization exclusively representing the Black college community. This episode will drop just in time for Giving Tuesday, which is December 1st. Consider donating to the Thurgood Marshall Scholarship Fund. Thank you for rocking with us. Wear a mask. Read a book. Peace. been listening to The Dap Project with hosts Rhonda Henderson and Aaron Stallworth. All opinions expressed in this podcast are that of our guests and may or may not be shared by The Dap Project. Follow us on Facebook. Search The Dap Project on Instagram, the.dap.project and online at thedapproject.com. <laughs>